Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. We're going to come to the book of Acts now. Uh, Acts chapter 24 is where we're going to be tonight. Um, and I just want to let, let's lead a, a few words of introduction into that. Um, last three days, I've been in Sydney at the Acts 29 uh, conference Acts 29, New Zealand, Australia, New Zealand, Japan conference. It's an annual event where um, church planters like me um, and church leaders and members of Acts 29 churches get together and uh, we just, you know, sit under the word, encourage each other, learn and things like that. Uh, It's networking, all that sort of jazz. Um, Acts 29, if you don't know, it's a church planting network, uh, which is all about planting churches that plant churches. And uh, we are part of that organisation here at City Light Church, North Adelaide. And uh, anyway, I went over there. Some of you know as well that Adele and I lived in Sydney for about 13 years. And so we you know, formed lots of friendships and relationships with parts of different churches and things like that. So going back to Sydney was kind of partly for the conference, but also this opportunity to catch up with old friends as well. And so the pace of my three days when I was in Sydney was insane. Um, you know, sun up to sundown, and even the hours after that, I was talking to people and meeting people. And when I wasn't at the conference, I was at a coffee shop, you know, eating, drinking coffee with an old friend and catching up, all this sort of stuff. It was really fast-paced. And uh, even right to the point where I got on the plane last night at Sydney Airport at 5.30, I was still talking to one of those old friends at the gate. He was going to Melbourne, I was going to, sit, uh, to Adelaide, and, um, you know, I had to walk off and he had to walk to his plane right to the very end. I sat down in row 13, seat A. It's the best row in the plane, right? Exit row. You know, just so much room, and there was no one sitting next to me, so it was even better. I was just like lounging out, and uh, I realised just how fast I'd kind of been going, right, up until that point. And you know, someone came around, offered me a drink. I got a drink. I drank my drink really fast, and then I had in front of me the Jetstar magazine. Anyone get into the, you know, the magazine in front of you just to kill time? It was there beside me. Was this Hulk and great big book that I'm getting through on the crucifixion of Jesus? And I thought I could keep going. I could keep reading. I could get into these things. And I thought. I just can't do it. I'm exhausted. And so I think for the next half an hour, I did absolutely nothing. Slowed right down and uh, just stared out the window, I think, at the clouds and the, and the land below me. Anyway, um, so I slowed down. It was great. Fast paced, slowed down. Then I got home out of the Uber cab and three children come running up to me straight away. The pace is back on. And of course, they don't come up to me and say, oh, Dad, it's so nice to see you. You've been gone so long. They're like, what did you get me? What presents have you brought? And I'm like, far out. Like, it's me, your father, you know. Why, what did you get me, Dad? What did you get me? They grab my bags and they start ripping the zips open and everything's spewing out everywhere. I'm like, whoa, just wait. Pace was straight back on. I share all that because we are at this part in the, the Bible. We're in Acts chapter 24. For most of the time in the book of Acts, the pace has been really fast. Lots of amazing things have been happening. Um, the gospel's been proclaimed from Jerusalem, it's exploded out across the Mediterranean. It seemed like wherever the gospel was just spoken, people, ordinary men and women, came to know Jesus, his forgiveness and eternal life. It was just amazing. Someone preaches boldly in the power of the Spirit, thousands get saved. It just seems like all the way through, there's just been success story after success story. Obviously some pain and bits and pieces along the way, but just this massive pace and progress. And then we got to chapter 20, where the pace slowed right down again. Paul, Ireland, uh, down in, in Turkey on the coast at the city of Miletus, where he slows down and addresses church leaders, tells them what really matters. Um, watch what you teach. Be devoted to the teaching of the apostles. And then all of a sudden, bam, the pace picks up again. But sort of after that speech in chapter 20, 
Look, the story of the gospel progress kind of looks really different. It's all about success, 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 it would seem, and then you kind of flick into this kind of part of that God's word and part of the progress of the gospel where it just seems like no one's listening. The gospel sort of seems to no longer kind of work. And you kind of go, what's going on? What's going wrong? And if you have a look, this is the last verse in the chapter we're looking at tonight, chapter 24, verse 27. It sort of sums it up. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favour to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. What's happened to the gospel? The interesting thing is, right, things aren't always as they seem. And we're going to see tonight just exactly how God's kind of secret hand is at work despite appearances. So I'm going to invite Ruth up. Here she is. Ruth's going to read for us uh, the chapter before us, Acts chapter 24. So have it open in front of you if you can. There are Bibles in the pews. There are, hopefully you've got a Bible in front of you, somehow electronic, etc. Thanks very much, Ruth. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge with this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining, examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all things, all these charges we are bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city, and they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, and that there will be resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked." So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they, if they hear anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found me in when I stood before them at the Sanhedrin. Unless, I, unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Then Felix, who is well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias is the commander comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard and to give him freedom and permits, permitted his friends to take care of his needs. Several days after Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was, a Jew, who was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. 
As Paul talked about righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now, you may leave. When I find it convenient, I will, hope I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years has passed, Felix was preceded by Portius Festus, and because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Let's, uh, let's pray and ask God to help us understand his word tonight, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for all the good things you give us. Uh, Lord, uh, thank you that you are at work amongst us uh, here tonight. You're present with us by your spirit through your word. And we pray that tonight as we think about your word, uh, Father, you would um, yeah, make, help us to see Jesus and hear Jesus and love Jesus. Uh, Lord, we, uh, we recognize that we are weak, you're strong, Father, that which we know about you, we, we struggle to even grasp that already, and Father, as we learn new things perhaps tonight, Father, help us to grasp you more, and Father, as we realize who we are in light of you, Father, we pray that you would help us once again to throw ourselves upon you, uh, Father, to run to you uh, in repentance and faith. Uh, we thank you that in Jesus we have all that we need. And so, Lord, we just pray tonight uh, that you would help us know Jesus better and equip us, Father, to promote your glory in this city and to the ends of the earth, uh, bringing joy to others around us. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I, um, I do hope you have that part of God's Word open in front of you. There'll be portions of it on the screen as we roll through and continue in this series in uh, the book of Acts. Um, just right from the get-go, the... The case that is against Paul, the apostle, that's put to him, Paul's in front of Felix, the governor of the province, the case that's put against Paul is really serious. Um, you know, as we read it, you might go, it didn't sound very serious to me, um, but it actually really is. The one thing that um, the Romans, and you know, they're in the power at this time, the Romans hated were kind of public disorder, disquiet. You know, they hated troublemakers. And it's exactly right what uh, the Apostle Paul is accused of, being a troublemaker. Um, did you catch that right at the, the very beginning? Um, I don't know, Tertullus, right, after this sort of big sucking, just catch the sucking upness of Tertullus before Felix. Oh, Felix, you're so amazing. You're so wonderful. You're an extraordinary governor. We've never had a governor like you. You're amazing. You're wonderful. Oh, if we had more like you, we'd be so much better off into the future. After he's waxed lyrical about the nature of Felix, have a look what he says in verse 5. We found this man, he's talking about Paul, to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of that Nazarene sect. That's kind of a political kind of term. And he's even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. It is actually really clever, right, on the part of the rulers of Jerusalem to say Paul's a troublemaker because, as I said, as I said Romans didn't like troublemakers. History tells us, actually, uh, that Felix, the governor for whom Paul's standing in front of, really didn't like troublemakers and dealt with them really harshly. Without going into detail, uh, there's a guy named Josephus who is a Jewish man himself and recorded lots of the history of the Jewish people around this time. You can read it in a thing called Jewish Antiquities. It's enormous, um, but it's really good. Um, but he, he writes, actually, about Felix and comments on Felix that he was a ruthless man. Basically, when Felix, you know, someone sort of presented a troublemaker before Felix, Felix would inqui you know, ask questions, determine, yep, you're a troublemaker, ship them off to Rome, never to be seen again. Gone. 
Felix was ruthless, and this is the guy that Paul is standing before. Tertullus says, this guy, Felix, is a troublemaker, just like the other ones you've dispatched to Rome and have had executed. It's really serious stuff. This is a really serious situation. But Paul, I don't know if you picked up, in verses 10 to 13, he totally denies all the charges that have been brought against him, quite rightly. He hasn't got like a dodgy band of brothers that he's kind of brought with him to create riots and stirring up trouble in Jerusalem. He's just there to kind of do religious service back in his kind of homeland. But I love, right, verse 14, Paul, amidst all these accusations, turns it all as he's speaking to Christian theology. I love it how he does that. He does it all the time. He's being accused of political, civil crime, and yet he turns the whole thing to an opportunity to talk about the gospel. Take a look at verse 14. Paul says, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a, fellow, as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that's in accordance with the law and that which is written in the prophets. He's basically saying, the guys are accusing me, I worship the same God as those guys who are accusing me. The scriptures that they are all about, I'm about them as well. The only difference is that he follows the Jewish path according to what he calls the way. I follow the way. They're calling it a sect. I follow the way. It's not a political movement. I follow the way. It's a favourite term that uh, that Luke uses, actually, uh, to describe this. Have a look at verse 22. He brings it up again. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way adjourned the proceedings. It's really interesting, right? The Apostle Paul probably never referred to himself as a Christian, probably never kind of talked about Christianity. He certainly wouldn't have said, I'm an Anglican, I'm a Presbyterian, I'm a a Lutheran. He wouldn't have said those things. He probably wouldn't have said, I'm an evangelical. He probably wouldn't have said, I'm a reformed evangelical. He just referred to what he knew as the way, the hodos in the original language, which means the road. It's kind of beautiful, isn't it? The road that Jesus taught us to walk, the hodos, the way. I think it's a good reminder, right, not to cling to labels too much in our Christian lives. I stand here tonight, and I've mentioned I'm a sinner, but I stand here tonight that I am a proud, reformed, evangelical, Acts 29 church planter Christian, yeah? That's who I am. You're looking at one of those. But you know what, I would, I would give up all those four labels in a heartbeat if they'd passed their use by date, if they were kind of damaged brands. I'm not wedded to those labels. In the end, right, if you're here tonight and you're a follower of Jesus, we are all followers of the way, the road that Jesus taught us to follow. And at the centre of the way is the resurrection, Christ's resurrection And if you are in Christ, our resurrection. Notice the emphasis on resurrection that Paul talks about in this section. Have a look at verse 15. Paul says, I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Um, Here we go. My notes are all over the place. Here we go. Catch up. Hang on, hang on. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Sorry, this is terrible. Uh, where are we? What's the next one? Oh, there we go. Let's just crack on. Um, I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, and there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. These who are here, he goes on, should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin, unless it was this one thing I've shouted as I stood in their presence. 
It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am here on trial today. As far as Paul is concerned, right, he is on trial for the gospel, for the resurrection of Jesus as the pledge of the resurrection of the entire world. That, that is what Paul is there for, and I find this really lovely, right, because it's clear that the only thing worth being on trial for, the only thing worth being in prison for, is for the gospel, for the resurrection, And I think it's kind of clarifying for us today as we live here in Adelaide in Australia. You know, if we're going to get up the nose of Australian society, which we always already do, and I think increasingly we will as we stand and follow the way in our culture, we might as well get up the nose of our society and culture for the right thing, yeah? For the gospel. That's got to be our kind of point of difference as we live in this world. The gospel of Jesus Christ, his death is in his resurrection. So let's think about this for a second. Like... I don't know, but I hope we all here tonight um, wholeheartedly believe that we as followers of the way, as followers of the Lord Jesus, should advocate for asylum seekers, for refugees, and for the poor. You agree with that? I don't think, though, that should be the hill upon which we die. That, that, I don't think it should be our major point of difference with the society around us. I also wholeheartedly believe that we should be advocating in the public for the truth, the beauty and the goodness of marriage as it's been universally understood throughout the millennia. But I don't think it should be the hill that we die on. It shouldn't be our defining point of difference between us and the rest of the world. I wholeheartedly believe that we should be speaking up for and standing up for the unborn and for the dying speaking up for those who can only cry out for mercy and not justice, but again, I don't think it ought to be the hill upon which we die. See, the real point of controversy between the followers of the way and the followers around them in the first century, and likewise for us today, is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection, crucified, risen for our rescue, for our salvation. It doesn't mean, therefore, that preaching is the only thing we ever do. Because there's a great reminder tucked away in this chapter of something else we ought to be really committed to as followers of the way. Whilst the church was going really hard in this 30-year period recorded for us in the book of Acts at proclaiming the gospel powerfully with the boldness and the power of the Holy Spirit, they never failed to care for the poor. Which leads me to to my second point, really, the, the collection. Here's an interesting question, and I'm going to get you to turn to the person next to you for about two minutes to work out what you think is going on. So get ready, remember? Get in first, they can answer it, you don't have to, right? You don't have to put yourself on the line. Um, why did Paul, right? It's really interesting. Why did Paul, um, you know, we've been following the gospel, right? He's been making this beeline for Rome to get kind of to the ends of the earth, and he's kind of almost within reaching distance of it just a couple of chapters ago, and he then decides to go back to Jerusalem on that crazy thousand-kilometer sailing journey across the Mediterranean. The question I have, why on earth did he do that? Why did Paul, rather than just kind of reach out and go to Rome, why did he go back to Jerusalem? Turn to the person next to you, see if you can work it out. So Paul, he seems to be you know, on his way to Rome, decides, nah, got to got to get back to Jerusalem, takes this crazy ride on a few boats, etc., crashes into the coast of Israel, walks into Jerusalem. Why? Anyone want to hazard a guess? 
Led by the Holy Spirit. Love it. Yeah. Good one. Wanted to go and preach to the Jews. Yeah, first, yeah. Last, last go. Lucky door prize on this one. No? <laughs> Yeah, sure. Wanted to preach to the Jews where other preach to people where other people wouldn't go. So he wanted to go back to Jerusalem. Yeah, sure. Well, you're all wrong. <laughs> no. Um, so I get to keep the lucky door prize. No, no. Um, I think the answer actually is tucked away in verse 17 of our passage tonight. Um, Paul was wanting to go back to Jerusalem to deliver a charitable gift to the poor um, and to do some religious observance. It's really interesting. Have a look. Um, after an absence of several years, that's like a long, that's a long number of years, right? I forget how long it's been, but he's been gone for quite some time. Uh, it's a sort of shorthand, I think, for an epic time away. I came to Jerusalem, Paul says, to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. It's really interesting. I kid you not, right? This little verse that's tucked away in the big book of Acts, so much ink has been spilt. Like, people have done PhDs, right, on that verse and on this kind of collection, this gift that Paul brings. I kid you not, like, I mean, not because, just because scholars are nerds, right, but they are, um, it's because it's actually a really big deal. It's a really big deal. We know from Paul's letters, right, so if you're not familiar with the Bible, lots of the New Testament is composed of letters that Paul has written at various times to churches that he had planted, actually, kind of on this sort of epic journey um, over the course of time. Um, We know from Paul's letters, actually some of these in the New Testament, that Paul spent years and years and years collecting money for the Gentiles, for the non-Jewish part of the church, the the churches in Turkey and Greece. They uh, were giving money to uh, the poor of Jerusalem because they'd suffered a massive famine in the years 44 to 49 AD, and the effects of that famine went on for like another decade. Paul believed, right, it was absolutely critical to collect money from Gentile believers for the poor in Jerusalem, the poor believers back in Jerusalem, the Jews. We get a glimpse of this, right, from Paul's letter to the Romans, right, which was written about one or one and a half years prior to what happens here in Acts chapter 24. So have a listen to this. We get a glimpse of Paul's plans here, of what he was doing. Um, He writes the church at Rome, chapter 15, verse 25 of Romans. Now, however, I I am on my way to Jerusalem in service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia, that's Asia Minor, Greece, Turkey, were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. Really interesting, isn't it? This was written one and a half years or so before we, what we're reading about this trial in Acts chapter 24. The Jews, right, they gave the nations, probably most of us, they gave the nations, the Gentiles, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. The least they can do is well, support their Jewish brothers and sisters when they're suffering and in need to support them. The other thing, right, to say here really briefly, and you might be going, where are we going with this, Jacko? Like, um, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, another letter that Paul writes, we learn that this collection was enormous, massive. 
It was so big, right, that each of the contributing churches would send with Paul like an escort to kind of help him lug the cash and all that sort of stuff. It's really incredible. Um, by the end, by the time Paul arrives in, um, in Jerusalem, he's probably like, like 10, 20 people with him, all these representatives from all the churches that have given some money. I reckon they're partly there to kind of protect Paul from bandits along the way and probably to protect Paul from, Paul from spending it at restaurants along the way, you know, kind of blowing the gift. I don't think he would have done that, but, you know, it was huge. It was huge. You know what I love about this? It's just a beautiful reminder to us that the, the chief evangelist of early Christianity was also the director of what we understand to be the first ever world international aid project. The chief evangelist of the early Christian church was also the director of the world's first ever, as far as we know, international aid project. I, I love that. Isn't that a great reminder? Um, we have no evidence to say there was an, a, an aid project like this in existence prior to this moment. Nothing. It's a wonderful reminder. This is why here at City Light Church North Adelaide, we are, we are committed to both supporting evangelistic-orientated projects and also aid-orientated projects. I think that's why, as we partner with Compassion Ministries, where we support children who are impoverished, mainly through our support of them in the Philippines, that we get to do that because they're both not just sharing the good news of Jesus with people who are trapped in poverty, they're also seeking to alleviate their poverty as well. Um, many of you know Tim Keller. Many of you know that I think Tim Keller is like, there's Jesus and there's Tim Keller. No, um, you know, but he's great. And he has this wonderful book called Generous Justice. You should really read it. It's a great book, Generous Justice, where he, I think, kind of, I saw for the first time how word ministry preaching the gospel and mercy ministry, caring for the poor, are not separate things that, you know, some people preach the gospel and some people do aid, but they never, never you know, shall the two meet. He has this great line, right, that um, the church, the local church, um, has this, there's a, he has this, they have this responsibility to be doing both word ministry and mercy ministry. He has this line that there is an asymmetrical yet inseparable connection between word and mercy, and you're going, what do you mean by that? Basically, we have a priority as a church to get the gospel out, but we have this responsibility to do justice and mercy. They're not separate. They are inseparable. Our kind of, the, the, you know, it's not kind of 50-50, but we have a, a responsibility to get the word out, but also to do justice and mercy. And I love it, right, that here's Paul, chief evangelist, doing this aid project at the same time. Love it. Over many years. One of the sadnesses, right, that we, we don't actually know how the gift that Paul and the 20 people are so brought to Jerusalem was received. It's one of those kind of things in history where after chapter 24, verse 17, it kind of just goes, whoop, just drops off the page. We don't know. But we do know. We don't know how the, the gift was received. We do know how the gospel of the Lord Jesus was received. Um, and the one word to describe that is mixed. Mixed. On the one hand, you know, Paul gets to cover heaps of ground with the Roman governor Felix. Um, have a look at verse 24. Check out the topics that Paul gets to cover with Felix. Um, verse 24. Several days later, uh, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish. 
He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. That's the gospel, right? He gets to share the gospel. Jesus died and rose again and you know, he's ascended into heaven and he's poured out his Holy Spirit. He's got, he got to tell Felix, the Roman governor, the gospel. It's great. Paul, verse 25, as Paul talked about righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, oh, that's enough for now. Isn't it great? I love that. Um, You've got to remember, like, this, was, this was done over about a two-year period, right? So this wasn't just like, let's go to Fellini's for a quick bite to eat and I'll tell you about all these things. This was lots of pizza at Fellini's over a couple of years. Um, Felix you know, would call Paul in and, and Paul would pick, up his top, you know, pick his topics. I think he would always say, Felix, man, you've got to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not going to end well unless you do that, so trust Jesus. But he also knew who Felix the man was, right? Told you about what you know, Josephus told us about him. He was ruthless. As far as we know, Felix was pretty brutal, licentious, debaucherous, impulsive, lustful. He was a despot. So I love, right, Paul stands before him and speaks about what? Self-control. Isn't that great? Righteousness, which in the original language, diakosune, can actually mean justice, and the judgment to come. Isn't it great? Self-control, justice, and the judgment to come. So no wonder Felix goes, right, that's enough, that's enough. Don't want to hear about this anymore. That's right, you know, whew, feeling uncomfortable right now. But Paul got to cover a lot of gospel ground. But on the other hand, right, isn't it interesting, verse 26, Felix's motives weren't exactly kind of spiritual, were they? Verse 26, at the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he'd send him for him, for him frequently and talk with him. I mean, how frustrating. You've had those moments, right, when you're sharing the gospel with someone, you feel like, I'm, I'm getting somewhere here. You know, like, they seem to be listening, and I think I'm making, I think, you know, they're getting the, the, you know, kind of the events of the gospel, and I think that I feel like it's having an impact. And then, you know, like, it just goes, like, just falls apart, you know, they talk more about the drink you're drinking or something like that. You know, I think it's the same here. I reckon Paul's going, man, he goes back, I think I'm making progress with Felix. It's really exciting. You know, we're talking about judgment and righteousness and the mechanics of the gospel and, oh, it's great. All the while, really, Felix is just wanting some cash. It could be. We don't really know. It could be that Felix was aware that Paul had arrived in Jerusalem with a lot of money and Felix kind of just wanted to kind of get his hands on a bit of that. I don't know, but either way, the response that Paul gets is pretty mixed, yeah? And we land in verse 27. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favour to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. And you know what? That's pretty much the pattern for the rest of the book of Acts. The rest of Acts is basically imprisonment, beatings, shipwreck, imprisonment, beatings, preaching the gospel, no one listens, beatings, more imprisonment, a long trial before Emperor Nero, and then we don't actually hear about that, but that's, he comes to an end. Are you looking forward to the rest of Acts? It's going to be great, isn't it? We finish on March 15. Come back next week. It's going to be great. But let me just say, things are not always as they seem, right? Things are not always as they seem when it comes to God and the gospel of God. Sure, we're not seeing extraordinary rates of conversion as we did in the first half of the book. First half of the book, you know, thousands of people becoming Christians. We see pretty much none of that here. But something else is happening. Something really significant is going on. I wonder if you caught it as we went through. The gospel cause 
is inching towards Rome. Did you see that? Chapter 24 of the book of Acts records the first time ever that the gospel is proclaimed to Roman power. Paul finally gets to share the gospel with Rome, to Felix, the governor of the empire of this particular region, representative of Rome. In the next chapter, chapter 25 next week, Paul gets to present the gospel, sure, while he's in prison, to the next Roman governor, Festus, and to the Roman puppet king, Agrippa. And together, Festus and Agrippa decide to send Paul on an all-expenses-paid trip to where? Rome. Come on, Rome. It's wonderful. In other words, right, behind the scenes is the secret, sovereign, superintending hand of the God who made everything and and propels this gospel, sustaining his cause. I find this extraordinary. This cause that looks like it's losing and is over, it isn't. It's on the move to Rome where it will literally, brothers and sisters, go to Adelaide, to the ends of the earth. It's extraordinary. And you know what? That's all that mattered to the Apostle Paul. Paul goes, I don't care what happens to me. I only care that the gospel moves forward. You know what I love about reading the book of Acts, kind of in concert with the letters of the New Testament, is we actually have Paul's letters that he wrote during these years of imprisonment. We actually get to know what Paul was thinking in these moments, what Paul was praying for in these moments, and it is unbelievable. You know, he's getting no success with the Roman governors, but listen to this, Paul writing to the Macedonians, to the Philippian church. When he's in prison, he says this, it's on the screen, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. It's unreal. Sure, the Roman governors aren't listening, but the whole palace guard is listening. They're all aware of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. How else would they have heard the good news? Check this out. 2 Timothy 2, Paul, still in prison, writes a couple of years later, verse 8, chapter 2, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not change. Can you say that with me? God's word is not change. I love this. So good. Acts 24 looks like on the one hand, hand, God's word's changed. Not going to go anywhere, but it's not. God's word is on the move. The cause of Christ wins even when it seems to be losing. Why? Because the secret, sovereign, superintending hand of God is behind all things. Praise God, eh? Amen? So good. As we kind of draw to a a conclusion, I think we see examples of this even today in our lives. Uh, You know, I don't know, I lose track of time, right? Like, when I think something happened six months ago, it was really like 12. I'm thinking like, you know, the new atheist movement, you know, with the patron saint of atheism, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, you know, where they're writing all their books, who read The God Delusion? Just me, great. Yep. Um, you know, but I feel like you know, I don't travel very much. But I feel like whenever I was in, like a, you know, in a in a lounge somewhere or in a you know in a in a, an airport terminal, I feel like every second person was reading um, the God Delusion. It's kind of a bit frightening. Um, 
But it's really interesting, right? This new atheist movement kind of has sparked up and there's been best-selling books, there have been TV appearances of all these people everywhere and they're very vocal. But you know what's happened alongside that? So many opportunities to proclaim the gospel. You know, how many debates have we seen in the last decade or so between an atheist and a Christian where the gospel, maybe not believed on and trans- you know, people just laying their lives down, but it's, it's proclaimed, sowing seeds. Lots of social commentators right even now are suggesting that um, people are, are kind of moving away from the atheism of the new atheist because they just go, I just can't, I can't live that. I can't, I, it just, it's too harsh. Many people just simply don't want the atheism of Richard Dawkins. Secret hand of God, I think, has been in this. The gospel gets to be proclaimed still. Um, I asked Bruce if I could share this. Um, he said yes. We haven't caught up since I asked him on Slack. Um, I don't want to embarrass our brother, but I was just really encouraged when I came back. Bruce is from China. Um, Bruce has come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. He's out here for study. He's come to know Jesus. And I was just so encouraged when I came back from our holidays in January. I was chatting to Bruce. He came up to me and he said, I just want to tell you something, Simon. Um, I went back to China to, to visit my parents. I'd never told them up until that point that I was now a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet I went, I hope, I hope I'm telling the story truthfully, Bruce. Please, we'll correct the record if I'm not. But, um, but he just came up and said, I, I went home and I was able to tell my parents that I've come to know Jesus and, and just tell them a little bit about what that actually means. And I think, if I'm right, Bruce, your, your parents didn't lay down on the ground and give their lives to Christ. There was a sense of a... a somewhat disinterest or not overly excited. But I just think, you know, in a, in a country like China, where there's such opposition and hostility to the gospel, and often people don't even have an opportunity to hear the true gospel, I think there's like just a little glimpse of the gospel just kind of inching into that phenomenally large land through a seemingly... You're not insignificant to me, brother but through just an ordinary fella who's come to know the extraordinary God. And who knows what that little seed... We pray, right? Let's pray that Bruce's mum and dad come to know Jesus. The gospel is inching forward, little bit by little bit, even though it seems like it's totally insignificant and a lost cause. It's not. You know, I was just at the Acts 29 conference over the last three days, and just of this last little while, we've joined in with the work that God is doing in Japan. I don't know if you know much about Japan, but Japan is an extraordinarily complicated country to break into with the good news of Jesus. There is a cultural kind of closure to the gospel there. It's one of the hardest places to reach with the good news of Jesus. And it's almost like you would go, it just seems like a lost cause. But at this conference, right, we got, to, we got to hear from Japanese brothers and sisters telling us about planting churches there. And the men and women and children are coming to know Jesus. It's extraordinary. And it was just beautiful, right? There's this man just preaching about Jesus in Japanese in front of 500 or so people. And I was just like, it's driven, it made me cry. Translated into English, but wow. You know, I often thought, you know, I've known other missionaries who've been working in Japan, and it's really hard. But isn't it wonderful? The gospel keeps going forward. 
Because behind the gospel is the superintending sovereign power of God who loves people and wants all people to come to know Jesus. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the cause of Christ wins even when it seems to lose, yeah? We've got to trust in the sovereign, secret hand of God. So I want to encourage us to leap out in public. Not literally, right? But, you know, like, stand up. Live for Jesus. Speak of Jesus as you have opportunity to do that. Sometimes you're going to feel, like I often do, like a total idiot. You know, but we're just followers of the way, yeah? Following Jesus for his glory and for the joy of those around us. Should we pray? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that you are indeed sovereignly superintending your mission. Father, we realise that without you doing that, we would be, well, lost effectively, yeah? And so, Father, we thank you that, Father, you are indeed at work Father, help us, Lord, we pray. Um, Often I feel in our context these days, it is hard to see how you are at work. And Father, it's really easy, I think, I feel it's really easy to grow discouraged, to think that we're trying all these different things and yet nothing seems to kind of be breaking through. And yet, Father, we just want to pray tonight that you would help us to trust you. And Father, as we have opportunity just to sow seeds or, I don't know, move people just that little bit along the road to finding Christ, Father, I pray that you would help us all here tonight not to lose heart, to keep trusting, to keep standing up, to keep speaking up. Lord, we pray. We pray particularly for our brothers and sisters around the world tonight who, because they've spoken up, because they've stood out, they are actually suffering in prison. Lord, we pray for them tonight that they would have the boldness of Paul in the same power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel even though they are in chains. And Lord, we realise that we are so free and so embolden us to reach out. And Lord, we lift up tonight Bruce's parents. And Lord, ask that in your mercy you would open their eyes to see Jesus, unstop their ears to hear Jesus, Lord, and soften their hearts to love Jesus. We want to hear a good news story from that, and Lord, we, we, we confidently bring them before your throne and ask that you would bring them to the Lord Jesus. And Lord, we do pray for our brother Bruce that you would continue to give him courage to share who you have made him to be and what you're doing in his life with the people in his family. And likewise for us, help us to do that. We are weak, you're strong. Uh, You are so good. You're good all the time. Help us to trust you. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.